0: Are we on here? Are we good? Do we got some volume? All right. How's everybody doing this morning? Are we good? Brent, thank you for sharing that message. I was just talking to Siobhan about the importance of knowing the difference between the things that we say and the things as they actually exist. When we say I'm going to church, we lose sight of the fact that we are the church. When we say that Oh, I'm going to a worship night at Refuge City Church. We should say, I'm going as a faithful, spirit-filled believer to join other faithful, spirit-filled believers to worship the same Lord and the same Savior that died for the sins of the world. It's not that I'm going to their church or you should come to my church. It's that you should go to the church, the church universal. You should participate in the body of Christ. We are spirit-filled believers who have been given gifts by a gracious God. And these gifts are for what? They're for using in the service of others as we build and establish the kingdom. So Brent, thank you for sharing that message with us this morning. It's convicting. You know, I didn't go and I told Siobhan, if I didn't go, I wouldn't have had my sermon ready for this morning. And that's the truth. But I know that while you were there, I was praying for you guys. So I, like Paul, could say I was there in spirit praying that the word of God would go out in power affecting the hearts and minds of all who were present as the worship team members from this local body partnered with the worship team members from that local body, not different churches, just different local bodies to praise the name of Jesus. One Lord, one body, one spirit, one baptism, right? (laughs) What are we talking about here then? Now, before I start preaching on a passage that I'm not supposed to be focusing on this morning, let's just segue into Peter. It's been a long time, four weeks, since we've been in our study of 1 Peter. This is our 25th sermon in the series, and I think we got one more to go, and we're going to have made our way through the entire letter. So I'm excited to be here this morning with all of you as we open up God's Word. So let's just do that. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Today we're going to be tackling verse 6. 11. So turn there in your Bibles if you've got them. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6-11. through 11. The text will be on the screen and I'll be reading from the ESV. Peter begins in verse 6. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Everybody read this with me. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Like I was saying, it's been about four weeks since we've set our attention on the words of Peter collectively. And so, the first thing that we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at verse 6 in juxtaposition to verse 5 with the goal of making some general observations together. So you guys are in this with me right now. We're making some general observations, and the goal of this whole exercise is to have us see what it is that we're studying today in the light of Peter's entire letter, and to see what it is that we're studying today in the light of the entire canon of Scripture. Amen? And then we want to think contextually from Genesis to Revelation and even the intertestamental writings because we're interested in what those have to say as well around here. So I'm going to ask some questions as we make general observations. Let's get the slide up on the screen. Everybody can see the text side by side. If I were to ask you guys, what is the theme that pops off the page in verse 5 and 6, what would you say? Who said that? Stand up and say it real loud. Why? Amen. That's the answer right there. Repetition functions to draw the reader or the hearer's attention to what it is that the author is trying to say. So we could say that the topic of humility brought our last study in the series to a close, and it's the topic of humility that opens our study for this morning. So humility is the bridge that connects our previous study with what it is that we're studying today. They're not disconnected. It's one letter, no chapters and verses in the original manuscripts. It's one large piece of work. Observation number two, Peter is addressing who? Us. So us is a singular or a plural term? Plural, that's correct. How do we know that? Well, we can look at the plural language. She points out us, right? She says he's writing to the church, and that's correct. But Peter says, all of you. (laughs) He says, all of you. Before saying that, he says, clothe yourselves. And over here in verse 6, he says, humble yourselves. The language is very similar in these verses that are connected. And Peter is speaking to what we could say the church universal. Why would we say that? Well, thanks to Peter's introduction, what we studied in our very first sermon in the series, we know that he wrote this letter to five Roman provinces. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And it wouldn't be beyond us to just make the assumption that each of the five Roman provinces have more than one house church functioning within them. So that means that lots of copies of this letters went to lots of different churches, which means lots of different people heard it, which means Peter's doctrine, which was for the church in the first century on humility, is just as important for the church today. Amen? That's why we say the authors wrote to them, but the word is for us, right? Right? The authors wrote to them, but it's for us. Observation number three. Verse five speaks of humility in a different capacity than verse six. Can you guys identify the capacities? Say again. Okay, so she's looking at verse five, and she's looking at towards one another. So we would say that's horizontal That's the exercise of humility in a horizontal capacity, person to person. And then I saw, Gabby, what'd you say for verse six? Which is vertical. So these are two different functions in which humility can operate, horizontally and vertically. All right? From the creator, uh, from the creation to the creator, and from the creation to the creation, we could say. Observation number four. Peter's instructions are grounded in the life and the ministry of Christ. Now I'm going to walk us through this for the sake of time. When we look at what Peter is saying, we're asking ourselves, what informs his doctrine? Now we covered this in our last study. The unique language of clothe yourselves is designed to transport the hearer or the reader back into a moment when Peter had a very personal experience with Jesus. John chapter 13 Jesus disrobes himself, and then he clothes himself like a slave. To do what? To wash the feet of the disciples. And in doing that, he says, I have given you an example. Do just as I have done. So as I have humbled myself and taken on the role of a servant for the sake of your good, you, my disciples, are supposed to humble yourselves and take on the role of a servant for the early church when it is birthed. Amen? Alright, verse 6 is designed to transport the hearer or the reader in my mind back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter was there for all of these experiences that we're talking about. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Who was in such agony that he fell to his knees and he cried out, Abba! Take this cup from me! Anything with you is possible! However, Not my will, but your will be done. We can see that Peter's letter to the church is largely informed by his experience with the greatest rabbi to ever walk the earth. Observation number six, we find a warning, observation number five, we find a warning in verse five. Can you guys tell me what the warning is? Say it again. God opposes the proud. That's a good warning to to have, right? Peter gives this warning by way of reminder because he's citing a proverb here, the ancient Hebrew wisdom literature for the early church. So this warning comes to us by way of reminder. In verse 6, we don't get a warning. We get a guarantee what some may refer to as a promise. What is that promise? that God will exalt those who humble themselves. Amen. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to limit it to these five observations. But if you've ever been a Bible student and you've taken a class on hermeneutics, you know that you should be able to make about 20 observations on a single verse. We made five out of two. This is a great way To begin your study of the text, sit down and pray and ask God to lead you into a deeper understanding. Open the Word of God and read it, and then begin to write down what it is that you see in the text. Make your observations. Note your observations, and then share your observations with your brothers and your sisters. It's a great way to begin one study. Now, if you were to ask me to summarize everything that we just covered in a single statement, I'd probably say something like, The Apostle Peter puts such a high value on the virtue of humility that he believes it should govern the conduct of the church. That's how I would summarize what it is that we're looking at right now. Can you imagine, church the impact that we would have on our cities, our states, and our nations if humility was one of the primary virtues that governed all that we thought, said, and did. Let all that you do be done from the foundation of love. With a heart of grace and with the virtue of humility, whatever the church's impact would be, I'll tell you, it would be greater than what it is right now. (laughs) So having primed the pump of our mind after being separated from the letter by four weeks in our communal aspect, we are now ready to enter into this morning's study. So can you guys read this next slide out loud for me, please? Now, if you've been with us, for the majority of this study or any of our previous studies, that you know that we go to great lengths time and time again to prove that the author's doctrine to the church is saturated in both the writings of the Hebrew scriptures and the teachings of the master. So the claim is that Peter's doctrine is bathed in the writings of the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis to Malachi, and the teachings of the master. I would even say that the intertestamental writings informed Peter's writings. Now, verse 6 is no different. However, if we're going to make that claim, just like we've always done, we're going to have to substantiate it, which means we need to offer supporting evidence to back the claim that we made. Now, New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner notes that the phrase, God's mighty hand, is an expression associated with God redeeming Israel out of Egypt. So let's ask, is this true? Exodus chapter 3 verse 19, in the midst of the flame of the fire, the angel of the Lord is having a conversation with Moses. And this is what he says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you, speaking of Israel, his people go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Who goes to war with the gods of Egypt through the battles of the 10 plagues? It's Yahweh. Later on in Deuteronomy, in the introduction of the book, we read, Then you shall say to your sons, we were Pharaoh's slaves. Past tense, no longer a reality in our lives. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Let's see what else we got. Deuteronomy 26. So we've seen in the introduction of Deuteronomy, and now we see a similar statement near the close of Deuteronomy. This is consistent thinking through the writings of the Torah. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Oh, that's one of Isaiah's favorites right there. With great deeds of terror and with signs of wonders. Amen. Anybody been delivered from the bondage of slavery in the house today? Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Are we excited about what God has done in our lives? Our exodus is no different than their exodus. And it was His mighty hand that accomplished it all. Look at the words of the prophet far beyond the writings of the Torah. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with what? With a mighty hand, have made a name for yourself. He did it for the sake of His name and we benefited from it amen that's the gospel right there if you read Daniel chapter 9 go home and read Daniel chapter 9 this week Daniel's prayer of praise is amazing he repents for his sins he repents for the sin of the nation and then he says Lord return us to Zion is that our prayer or what I mean come on we're talking about the gospel today who's getting excited with me so we've made our connections Having looked at these passages, I think we just killed two birds with one stone. A, we were able to substantiate Shriner's claim. And B, we offered up four passages of evidence that Peter's doctrine is grounded in the text of the Hebrew Scriptures. We're 2,000 years plus removed from this. And we can see that Peter is looking back into the history of Israel as he writes to encourage those who are suffering harm in the early church. And I'll tell you what, if it was encouraging for the early church, it's encouraging for us today. Amen? That's how the Word of God works. It's for the church in all times and in all places. Having proved that Peter's doctrine is saturated in the writings of the Hebrew Scriptures, we need to turn our attention to the teachings of the Master because we said it's saturated in both. Now I'm going to need two volunteers to help me out. Who wants to read Luke chapter 14 verse 7 through 11? All right, Tommy, come on up here to the microphone. Once you get it, Luke chapter 14, verse 7 through 11. I need one other reader who's going to read from Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. Nevea, you'll do that. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. So right here, Tommy, once you got it, Luke chapter 14. Turn in your Bibles if you got it, because it won't be on the screen. We're reading chapter 7, or I'm sorry, 14, chapter 7, verse 11. Tommy, I need you to read into the microphone so that it can be captured for the... Luke chapter 14, verse 7 through 11. Now remember, we're asking the question, is Peter's doctrine grounded in the teachings of the Master? Now he told the parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Hmm. Is Peter's doctrine informed by the master? Let me ask one question. Who do we think the host of this marriage feast is in this parable? I would argue that it's the only one who has the authority to exalt. To truly exalt. Okay, Nevea, come on up. We're reading from Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through
1: 14. 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their religiousness and looked down on everything else, Jesus told this parable Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at the distance. He would not even look up to the heaven, but beat his breast, and said, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humble, and those who humble themselves will be exalted.
0: Thank you, Nevea. Okay, so we have two different parables. Jesus is an itinerant preacher traveling from place to place to place, telling the same stories to different groups of people hundreds, maybe even thousands of times. We have two different examples of two stories he told, and they all end with the very same line. The very same line that Peter uses. Is Peter's doctrine informed by the teaching of the master? According to Jesus, humility precedes exaltation. Think about the Beatitudes, everybody. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's a great way to say blessed are the humble in heart, for theirs what? It will be theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. We, the church, are to humble ourselves before the Lord, Peter says, for he alone has the authority to save. Peter would say he alone has the authority to exalt. Just as the Lord was the faithful deliverer of his people from Egypt, so he too will vindicate his people when we stand before him at the great white throne of judgment and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant and we are honored in the presence of all and given a crown and a new name and a new body. And we will lay that crown down at the feet of the one who honored us and we will honor him in return as we enter into his thanksgiving for all of eternity. Why? Because better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. Karen Jobes writes that the gospel of Jesus Christ Is God's deliverance from bondage, bondage of sin, and bondage of death. And we know that by faith we enter into his eternal glory. So according to Peter, humility is the prerequisite to exaltation. No humility, no exaltation. This is why we can never forget, saints, that God opposes the proud. There's our warning but he gives grace to the humble. The reality that God gives grace, that's something that should motivate us to embrace what it is that Peter writes next in verse 7. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Now, I absolutely love this passage. I mean, I look at this passage, and this passage just feeds my soul. It spotlights the responsibility of the believer in relationship to God. We are not a Jesus-take-the-wheel kind of people. And we are not a live-and-let-live kind of people either. We are a people who takes responsibility and authority... In our lives, for the decisions that we have to make, and we do the best that we can with what we have at the time, trusting that God is going to walk with us in and through whatever it is that we face. Amen? That's how God is. That's why His name is Emmanuel, the one who dwells in the midst of His people. He's never far off. Now, Foy Valentine says that Christians must not wait for God to take all of the initiative. (laughs) Don't wait. Don't do it. If you're sitting there in your chair, I'm just waiting for a sign from God. Stop it. (laughs) He's given you a mind, He's given you His Word, He's given you the Spirit, He's given you the fellowship of the saints. Make a move. Cast your anxieties on Him. It's not on God to pluck from our hands and pull from our hearts the anxieties of the world. Look at what Peter says. It's on us to cast those things at his feet. If we think that we should wait on God to do all things, Peter says, actually, it's quite the opposite, my friend. One commentator notes that the term cast suggests a single uh, decisive action. Think about that. Single decisive action. Men, we do this all the time. That girl's fine. I'm going to ask her on a date. Boom. Follow through. Rob, you just did that with Deb. Will you marry me? Right? He made, he took decisive action. And he did it with his full being. He didn't say, Deb, you can have half of me. It's all of me or nothing. Nothing. And I will take all of you or nothing. What say you? Single decisive action. In effect, Peter writes that it's our responsibility to surrender our anxieties to God. Why should we do this, church? Peter tells us exactly why we should do this. Because he cares for us. Is that not enough for you? That the God of the universe, that the creator and the sustainer, the giver and taker of life, cares for you? Is that not enough? That you think you have to hold on to everything? All too often I hear that God is able, however the ones who affirm this reality simultaneously doubt that God is willing. I could ask every person in here, is God able to help you through your current circumstances? Without a doubt, if you're a spirit-filled believer, it, it automatically you're going to say, yes, absolutely, I believe he is able. But deep down in our hearts, we cry out, God, are you willing? <laughs> you're no different than the disciples who were with God himself in the boat in the midst of the storm and they grabbed him and they shook him and they said, don't you care that we're going to die? That is us! So often that is us. And we can't even say, oh well they had it better because Jesus was with them. No, we have the Spirit who is equally God tabernacling in us. God is present. It's not a yes or it's not a a maybe or I hope. It's a yes or no. He's either with you or He's not. He's either for you or you're against Him. That's how God rolls. All or nothing. Single decisive action. I hear it all too often. I don't know if he's willing. Do we believe that God is able and yet unwilling? Shame on us. God is able and willing to shoulder our anxieties. And Peter tells us why. Because he cares for us. But it's on us to take it to him. My wife has a a crazy fear. Fear. That I will die before she does. And that she will be left alone in this world. That is a worry. That is a worry. I can't do anything about it. But you know who can? God. He can hear your prayers. Take your anxieties to Him and cast them at His feet. Lord, help me to be loyal. The psalmist says to Him who walks uprightly, You will give the desires of their heart. Don't let my husband die before me. That's an anxiety that you should cast at His feet. Jen, are you worried about Brian? Every day. How about your other sons? Every day. How often are you going to God and saying, Lord, use me to bring them to you so that all of the chaos can be reconciled and order can be restored. Every day. Cast your anxieties on him and you do this. Why? Because you know what? He cares for you. Deb, You're raising a son who is experiencing things in his body because of high levels of stress that no child should have to go through. How often are you waging war at the feet of Jesus and casting these anxieties on him? Every day. Multiple times a day. This is why I love being in this body because I'm surrounded by people who are going to stir me up to do even more than they're doing themselves. Cast your anxieties at the feet of the one who cares. At the feet of the one who has authority over all things. If we don't do this, we have forsaken the truth of Scripture. If we don't do this, we have forsaken the truth of Scripture. It seems to me that Peter is drawing on the wisdom literature of the psalmist. Cast all your cares upon the Lord and He will continually sustain you. You cannot expect that God will continually sustain you if you do not obey His Word. Why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do the things that I say? If you love me, you will what? You will obey my commandments. Has God spoken through the psalmist? Okay. Are we obedient? If we do not cast our cares upon the Lord, he cannot, because of our disobedience, continually sustain us. It's not that he doesn't have the authority, it's that we're short-circuiting his sovereign will. He has invited his children into the process. You have an opportunity to be loyal, and if you are rebellious, there will be consequences. Look at wisdom, the wisdom of Solomon. Now, I want to be clear here. This is not scripture, okay? This is not inspired literature. However, it comes from the intertestamental period, and it is important. Why is it important? Because Peter knew the wisdom of Solomon, just like he knew the wisdom of Sirach. This writings predates the life of Christ, which means he would have known it as a good, pious Jew who lived in the Old Covenant. As a Second Temple Jew, he would have studied Second Temple literature. And it says, for there is n- no other God besides you who cares for all people. That comes out of the wisdom of Solomon. That's in the Apocrypha. It's your Deuterocanonical books. You should read these writings. <laughs> the disciples read them. We should read them. And if you're like a Reformation guy, well guess what? John Calvin and Martin Luther translated these writings and they stuck them in the backs of their Bibles behind the letter of the revelation of Jesus Christ because they knew that they were important for the church to study too. They were actually a part of the original King James translation. So you can't argue that these books are bad. Because the fathers of the Reformation translated them and you know what that communicates? There's value. They put the work of translating in them so they could be read. Why? Because there's value. So it's not inspired, but it's helpful. And we want to take everything that we can to help us see the way that the disciples and the apostles saw. Okay? Now, the truth of Scripture, the truth of Scripture, right here, with the aid of extra-biblical writings. But the truth of Scripture alone should inform how we think. The truth of Scripture should transcend how we feel and it's the truth of Scripture that should speak most clearly in the midst of our current circumstances. Why? Because that's where we find the promises of God. If this is not the case, we will lose sight of our responsibilities before the Lord. And it is our responsibility to A, humble ourselves, and to B, cast our anxieties on Him. He can't do that for you. New Testament scholar Daryl Charles notes that it is through humble submission. Here we go, full circle, back to verse 6. It is through humble submission to God that one is genuinely set free from fear and anxiety. To be in the arms of God, which is just another way of knowing and understanding that God cares. To be in the arms of God is to know both divine provision and to understand God's benevolent care. Amen? We cannot forget this, saints. As Christ himself handed, handed himself over to the one who judges justly. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 23, which was no different than the holy women who placed their hope in God. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 5. And as Peter has already encouraged his audience to entrust their lives to a faithful creator, 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 19, so now Christians must allow God to be God by laying their anxieties at his feet. We're two verses into our Bible study this morning, and I am fired up. I'm feeling hopeful in the midst of all that life has to throw for me. Anybody else in the room with me? I hope so. (laughs) We serve a God who cares. We could close the Bible and walk out right now, and that should be enough. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Now, I don't know which verse I love more. I said I loved the previous passage, but I might love this one even more. I love this one because it blows my mind that the dude who fell asleep on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane had the stones to write this. (laughs) Be sober-minded. Be watchful. The very two things that I was not in the Garden of Gethsemane, church, you need to be that. He knows best, amen. (laughs) The same dude who was warming himself by the fire and would shortly deny Jesus three times tells the church, Be sober minded and be watchful. Why? Because the enemy prowls around. That dude got (laughs) got twice in the same night. (laughs) We're in good company, (laughs) y'all. We're in good company. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. This is the third and final time in the letter that the Apostle Peter urges. Vigilance, church. Vigilance. Vigilance. Active, not passive, Christianity. Be vigilant. We need to be vigilant because the devil is always on the prowl. How many of us are aware that the real enemy of the church is spiritual? I love what Dr. Craig Keener says. He says that human authorities may only be instruments of demonic intentions. Human authorities may only be instruments of demonic intentions. Those who are dead in the spirit, who are slaves to the flesh, they are fodder for the cannon of the enemy. We need to remember that we wage war with an enemy who is unseen And who is very powerful. And who is not alone either. The chief enemy of God's people is not passive. Why are we passive? Our enemy is not. He's not waiting for people to slip into his grasps. He's not a scavenger who waits for his prey to die. The devil is a predator who actively searches for victims. He's looking to take every one of us down. At any moment. One may argue that the diabolical agenda of the adversary. Is not the physical destruction of the faithful believer. But rather their apostasy. And we're going to prove that. That's a massive claim right now. A lot of people think that the devil is out to kill their physical body. Which blows my mind because it contradicts the words of the master. Who says do not fear those who can kill the body. But fear the. Only one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Do a word study one day on what it means to be destroyed, by the way. It's interesting. Traditions skew how we should see the text. I don't know anything that's destroyed that continues to exist. This is the third and final time that the Apostle Peter urges vigilance We know that the devil is a predator, and his diabolical agenda is to cause us to apostatize. I'm going to need four volunteers to read. Who wants to read Job chapter 2, verse 3 through 5? Deb, so come on up here, because I'm going to need you guys to line up. Job chapter chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. Tom, I saw you raise your hand. You can read Daniel chapter 3, verse 13 through 18. You'll be second in line. I need someone to read Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 8 through 11. Who wants to do that one? Okay, Trey, come on up. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 through 11. And Acts 26, verse 9 through 11. Who wants to do that? Josh, come on up. All right, so we'll just line up this way. You'll read at the microphone. Tom will go second. Trey will go third. Josh will go fourth. I'll give the passage before they read it just so that we can focus. And remember, we're asking the question, is the diabolical agenda of the enemy to destroy us physically or to destroy us spiritually? Go ahead, read Job chapter 2, verse 3 through 5.
1: Okay. The Lord said to Satan, "'Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil.' And he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered to the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote job with sore boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head and he took a post herd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes then his wife said to him do you still hold fast to your integrity curse god and die
0: that's good that's good thank you thank you so there it is twice twice in the passage that that deb just read there's our evidence number one Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. You know how Job is described in the opening of the book? As a blameless and righteous and upright person. You can't hold that status if you begin to curse the one that gave it to you. Satan even uses the wife. Curse God and Enemies on the prowl in Job, I'm telling you. Where have you been, Satan? I've been on the earth going to and fro, looking. He's on the prowl. Okay, we're going to look at uh, Daniel chapter 3, verse 13 through 18. Furious with rage,
2: Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. All right. <laughs> uh, Summoned Shadrach.
0: More evidence for our argument. Is it true that you won't worship my gods, our gods, or the statue that I've set up? Just do it and all will be well, Nebuchadnezzar says. A voice for the enemy. Look at what they say. (laughs) Even if he will not. Even if he will not. You know why? You know why these faithful Jews could say that? Because they understand that humility before the creator precedes exaltation. Man may shame me in the presence of these uh, masses. But in the end, God will vindicate me and he will shame the one who shamed me. Because vengeance is his. Amen? Amen. All right, we're asking the question, is the devil after our physical body? Or is the devil after our spirit and our soul? Go ahead. Uh, actually, hold on. Pause, Trey. We're going to be good Protestants today. And I'm going to read from the Apocrypha. <clears throat> Look, I'm reading from 2 Maccabees. It's a historical book. These things really happened. Peter would have had this writing. He would have studied it himself. And if you want to know where the Hanukkah holiday comes from for the Jews, you're not going to find it in the Bible, but you're going to find it in here. And you know when Paul talks about festivals and new moons, he's including Hanukkah in that. So what's Paul's source material for that? What's the history of his people and where is that written? It's written in the Maccabees, baby. So let's read the same stuff that the Apostle Paul and Peter would have read. (laughs) This is called the Martyrdom of Eliezer. Eliezer, one of the scribes in high position, a man now advanced in age and of noble presence, was being forced to open his mouth to eat swine flesh. Now he's a Hebrew, he can't do that. But he, welcoming death with honor rather than life with pollution, went up to the rack of his own accord, spitting out the flesh, and ought to go with, who, uh, I'm sorry, as as all ought to go, who have the courage to refuse the things that it is not right to taste, even for the natural love of life. So he says, I'm not doing this. Even if it's natural, God has said that I should do other. Those who were in charge of that unlawful sacrifice took the man aside because of their long acquaintance with him and privately urged him to bring meat of his own, providing proper for him to use and just pretend that you're eating the flesh of the sacrificial meat that's been provided by the king, by his command, so that by doing this, he might be saved from death. Just compromise your principles so that you might live, his other Jewish friends are saying. Be treated kindly on our account, old friend, but making a high resolve worthy of his years, the dignity of his old age, and the gray hairs... He had reached with distinction in his excellent life, even from childhood, and moreover, according to the holy God given law, he declared himself quickly, telling them, Send me to Hades. Translation I'd rather die. Such pretense is not worthy of our time of life, he said, for many of the young might suppose that Eliezer in his 19th year had gone up to the alien religion. I don't want to influence the next generation. I don't want them to see me capitulate. I want them to see me faithful. So I will not do this. Even if for the present, I would avoid the punishment of mortals. Yet whether I live or die, I will not escape the hands of the Almighty. Who's his chief concern? Therefore, Therefore, by bravely giving up my life, I will now show myself worthy in my old age. And I will leave the young a noble example on how to die a good death with willingness and dignity for the laws of God humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God this priest in the second temple era knew that if he were to defect it would have a ripple effect that would roll through the Hebrew history and have the power like no other this priest Eliezer is famous in rabbinic writings he's famous okay okay Go ahead. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 through 11.
2: Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him.
0: Thank you. Worship me. Rebel against the will of the Father and worship me. Talk about some stones. <laughs> Talking to Jesus. Bow down and worship me. Apostasize. I'll give you everything that your heart desires. Just rebel. It's not asking Jesus for his life. Jesus was willing to lay his life down later to take the victory. Satan was asking him to compromise his principles. see this last example in Acts chapter 26, verse 9 through 11.
2: I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign
0: cities. Hmm. Paul says it was my goal to make them blaspheme the name of Jesus. And if they would not, then I would stone them no different than we stoned Stephen. This last one we're going to look at comes from history. I tried to pull some intertestamental history, and I'm trying to pull some post-history from the letter that Peter wrote. This comes from Trajan, and it's to Pliny. Trajan's a governor, and they ruled in Pontus and Bithynia. Those names sound familiar? Pontus and Bithynia, from 111 to 113. This is probably... 30 to 50 years after Peter wrote his letter, however you decide to date it early or late. Listen to this. You observed proper procedure, my dear Pliny, in sifting the cases of those who have been denounced to you as Christians, for it is not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They are not to be sought out, and they are not not to be sought out. If they are denounced and proven guilty, they are to be punished with this reservation. Listen that whatever, that whoever denies that he is a Christian and really proves it, that is by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. But anonymously posted accusations ought not to have any place in our prosecution, for this is both a dangerous kind of precedent and out of keeping with the spirit of our age. Look at the, <laughs> just get them to apostatize by worshiping our gods, and will give them pardon. You can't get around it. In my mind, you can't get around it. Have we proven that the steal, kill, and destroy agenda of the enemy holds a closer relation to the spiritual rather than the physical? Well, ultimately I'm going to leave that in your laps to make your choice because I don't make decisions for you. Because... That shouldn't be our focus, although that's important to know. We need to recognize we have one responsibility. Peter says, resist him. That's Peter's guidance. Resist him, which goes hand in glove with do not apostatize. Do not capitulate. Do not bend the knee. Do not try to usurp the will of God for your personal gain. Resist him. How? Firm in your faith. That's our responsibility, church, right there. Whether you believe that the agenda of the enemy is physical or spiritual, our responsibility doesn't change. Resist him. Schreiner writes that the resistance that we are to offer is not passive. He says that as believers, we will not triumph over the devil if we remain passive. Saints, I'm here to tell you, if you live a passive Christian life, you are a meal waiting for the devil. This begs the question, though, for the student of the text, as all of us are, what does active resistance look like? Don't just tell me to resist. Teach me how to resist. Okay? I think a better way to ask that question is to ask this way. How do we train Christians? Or how do we prepare to actively engage an enemy that remains unseen? That's the question I think we should be asking. Because you should train like you fight. We were just talking about this, Garnes. You shadow box all day, you get in the ring with a dude who's tried and trustworthy and true, he's going to knock you on your butt. (laughs) There's no way around it. this is why we read the Bible the way we read the Bible and we study the Bible the way we study the Bible because we're training here so when we go out there, we're actually ready to fight. No bread and butter gospel here. No fluffy message here. You're going to think critically about the text and you're going to have to make your own decisions. Because your pastor's not going to be there for you when you're in the thick of an argument. You're like, how do I answer this question, pastor, man? I just got challenged by this atheist and I don't really know what to do. You're like, man, you should have paid attention, bro. You're breaking up. Got to go, bud. (laughs) (laughs) Telling you. (laughs) So what's the best way to have this conversation? Well, I think the best way to have this conversation is to ask questions. How often are we spending time in God's Word? Oh man, did the pastor really just go there? How often are we spending time in God's Word? Yeah, I went there. And I'm not talking about in isolation. I'm talking about how often are we spending time in God's Word in the midst of the fellowship of the saints. If it's not on your tongue, it's not on your mind. If it's not on your mind, it can't be coming from the overflow of your heart. We're just going to keep it a buck here. We're going to keep it 100. If you don't read the Word, you can't know God. If you don't know God, you can't understand His character and His nature. And you can't be in right relationship with someone that you don't know. <laughs> so it is simple. We miss the mark all the time. Me, this is how I do my life all the time. I'm like, yeah, I know where I'm going. Oh, man, well, where did that come from? Whoa, that's me. I'm not up here looking down on you. I'm telling you, I go through the same thing every single day. <laughs> how often are we spending time in the Word? How often are we spending time in prayer? Individually and communally, how often do we pick up the phone and say, Intercede for me right now? I'm dying. How often are we interceding on the behalf of others? Is our free time dominated by those who are of the world? (laughs) Or is our free time dominated by those who live in the world and are not of it? This is an important one for those of us who are struggling. I'll tell you, a wise man once told me, you show me a man's friends, I'll show you his future. It's true. It's just a modern day way to say good morals are corrupted by bad company. when we have our airpods in and we're listening to youtube and we're podcasting what is the content does it feed us spiritually or does it tear us down what about music and movies what goes in What goes in will definitely have an effect. God created us that way. We have a problem with our hearts already. It's not what goes in that defiles us, but I'll tell you what goes in can make a difference. We're already defiled. We don't need no help, but then we do all this consuming and consuming and consuming. Do we know that social media is designed to give us a dopamine release like a slot machine in Vegas? How often are our eyes glued to our phone and we're just chasing that next dopamine release? Man, I hope that chick with big tits comes up through my newsfeed today so that I can get away with not looking at porn, but I can stare at her photo. Oh, y'all have a problem? Because I said big boobs, big tits. I'm not the one sitting there looking at my phone consuming the pornography because that's what it is. If the shoe fits, wear it. (laughs) What are we consuming? Are we making ways in our lives to get around things so that we can see things and hear things that we shouldn't be seeing and hearing? I'll tell you, a lot of wisdom goes a long way. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, saints, what you do. What you do with your body matters. There's wisdom in this. To resist Him, to resist Him firm in your faith requires the discipline of being in right relationship with God and His people. Take note of what Peter says next. He says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the known world. This is a statement of universal unity. Not one of us is experiencing it. All of us are experiencing it. And the degrees may vary, but we're all going through it. Solidarity with those whose experience is the same, creates an extraordinary bond of motivation to persevere. Whether people share in suffering or enjoy, common fellowship breeds uncommon motivation. You know where alcoholics go so that they can do well? To AA. You know what AA is full of? Alcoholics. Where do sex addicts go? To SA. Why? Because they're surrounded by people who know that they're addicted and they're trying to fix it. Is the church a common body of believers that functions as the same kind of safety net for these things that the world has designed? Are we a safe place? Do people feel welcome when they come in? Or are they standing on the streets scared? This is a statement of universal unity. The battle that we wage is a corporate one. To be isolated leaves one vulnerable to the schemes of the devil. If we truly desire to resist him, then we need to focus on being in right relationship with God and with right, in right relationship with God's people. That's where it starts and that's where it stops. Can you guys read this last slide for me, please? I love it because Peter just told the church that if you think you're alone and you're suffering, the entire church is suffering. And now he tells the church that after you have suffered a little while. These verses kind of screw things up when we try to get the flow of the thoughts. You know, I can only fit so many words on a slide, which is why we need to know God's word. Like the Psalmist says, your word is worth more to me than a thousand bags of gold it is sweeter on my lips than honey and i have hidden it in the deepest parts of my heart so that i might not sin against you peter cannot help it he can't help it he's a man like the man i just described he continues to remind his loved ones that the god of all grace has called them how many times in this letter has peter told the people of god that you have been called we just read the parable of the of the marriage feast. This is the invitation of the Creator. <laughs> You've been invited to the table, and my son made away. Do you want to celebrate with me or not? <laughs> this is the invitation. You have been called. Even in his closing prayer, we find a source of healthy doctrine. Earlier in the letter, Paul wrote that, the, that God gives grace. Now he says that God is grace. And that grace is made manifest in His promise to restore, to confirm, to strengthen, and to establish. Do we want to be built like a house that has a firm foundation? Confirmed? Established? Strengthened and restored? Or do we want to be like a house built on the sand that when the wind and the waves come and crash against it, it stands no chance? We opened our study this morning by identifying a guarantee or a promise in verse 6. And as we prepare to close, we've identified another wonderful promise in verse 10. God will do this. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He will do this. He is the faithful covenant keeper. If you ask me to summarize what we're looking at, I might say something like, after what is only a blip on the radar screen of eternity, the suffering that we have experienced will give way to an unending glory. Unending glory! Knowing, understanding, and embracing this reality causes me to respond no different, and I hope that it causes us to respond no different than the Apostle Peter himself. Read this last line with me because God is faithful. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Man. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Yeah. We're done with the study, but I got a couple of questions that I just want us to meditate on this week. Like, Do we get excited? Do we get excited when we meditate on God's promises of future exaltation? I can't think of a better message. When my team wins or when the song comes on that I love, I get excited. Do I get excited when I meditate on the promise of exaltation in the future? Do we get excited when we're reminded that God cares for us? Do we take seriously the warnings to be sober-minded and be watchful? Are we actively preparing? Are we actively training to resist firm in our faith? What's our heart posture before the God of all grace when we set our minds on the reality that He's going to make good on the promise? Saints, if this don't get us excited, nothing will. That's it. And if this don't get excited, you got to do a heart check. You need to do an inventory. I stand up here and I scream and I yell and I spit because I love this gospel. Do we love it? I hope so. The enemy is seeking right now to marginalize the joy that we are attempting to experience as we open God's word. You've read that before. It's not that important. You've heard this sermon before. This other guy could have preached it better. This other girl could have explained it better. No, don't let the enemy do that. He's working right now to steal the joy that you should be feeling because the God of all grace cares for you. Father, thank you for this day as the worship team comes up to close us in a song and the prayer team approaches, Lord, we just, we want to be a people who humbles ourselves before you. We want to be a people who gets excited about the fact that you are faithful to your covenant. We want to be a people who loves Jesus more and more. We want to be a people who are bathed in the Hebrew scriptures and the teachings of the master ourselves. So Father, I pray, Lord, that you would touch us in a way that our hearts and our minds would continually be transformed. That our lives would be a living sacrifice. That we would talk about what it is that we learn. That we would talk about what it is that we read. That our minds would be constantly set on you. Father, help us to train and to prepare well. Because if life is going to be an average length for us, we have a lot of resisting to do firm in the faith. So bless the work of our hands, Lord, as we strive to be loyal and faithful and obedient in Jesus' name.